0: Thank you, Anthony. If you have your Bibles, open to the uh, book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I want to talk to you about Paul's description of the church and for each of us, our role and what God intends for us. I want to share with you 10, ten principles or, or 10 questions that you can use to evaluate yourself in terms of your own spiritual growth and maturity. And I think it's important, and I think you'll agree, that we should periodically step back and evaluate our lives and evaluate our spiritual progress. Would you agree? So look with me. Now, I may go a little bit longer than usual, so bear with me. Be patient. Have mercy on your pastor. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, it was he, meaning Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, So these are are gifted people that Jesus has appointed as gifts to the church. And he's given these people to the church, he says in verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. Part of my role as a pastor is to prepare and equip you for works of service. You are the ministers of the gospel. Turn to your neighbor, and if they didn't know it, tell them, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's enough. You're talking about other stuff now. (laughs) To prepare God's people works of service so that, and this is key, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How many how many look forward to and the desire to be mature in their faith? Mature Christians. He's talking to us, maturity is evidence in the fact that we become more and more like Jesus. And that's the goal, that's the purpose. God is conforming us to the very image and to the very likeness of Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. There are all manner of people purporting to have the truth and leading people astray today. All sorts of religions, philosophers, philosophies, uh, ways of life, different cultic groups, and people even purporting to be Christians who write things and publish things that are not biblical. You have to be very, very careful and committed to maturing as a Christian as you pick up some of this stuff and read it. You want to make sure that what you're reading is the truth. Trust me. And he goes on and he says instead speaking the truth in love we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All of us have a part to play. All of us are members of the church the body of Christ. When Jesus was here Existing in one body, he did so much. In fact, John writes at the end of his gospel that all the books in the world can't contain all that he did. And yet, at the same time, he said that that we, his disciples, we would do more things, we would go beyond what he'd done in terms of ministry. And so God has prepared for us things to do. We are now the body of Christ. God's purpose, God's will for you and I as Christians is simply to grow, to become like Him. And we are accountable for that. So you have to ask yourself this question at the outset. Am I growing as a Christian? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Now you can ask that kind of global question and you can subjectively make an evaluation of yourself. Say, I think I'm growing. But it's much better to have some criteria, some more objective criteria whereby you evaluate and you can, you can see just where you are. So that's what we want to do this morning. <clears throat> the story is told of a, an explorer to the North Pole, who as he was going towards the North Pole, he would chart his position hourly to ensure the fact that he would actually stay on course. And at one point, a strange phenomenon began to happen. As he checked his position, his instruments indicated that even though he had been moving northward in the direction he was supposed to move, he was actually farther south than he had been an hour previous. You get the picture? Regardless of the speed at which he had walked in the direction of the North Pole he continued to get further from it. What was happening, do you think? Well, he discovered that he had ventured out onto an enormous ice flow, and the ice flow was drifting in one direction as he was walking in the other direction. And as fast as he would walk, he was getting further and further behind. Now, what's the point of that? The point is there's a world of difference between activity and progress, a world of difference. This is as true on on our journey as a Christian to the celestial city of heaven as it is on a North Pole expedition. The Christian life is meant to be one of growth and progress. It's meant to be a life of what? Growth and progress. In fact, the Apostle Peter, at the end of his second letter, commands us to grow. If you could read the Greek text, which we have the translation into English, the Greek text, this is in the imperative mood. It's the mood of command. And Peter tells us to grow. and He commands us, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are meant to grow as Christians. You don't get saved and you're stunted in your growth. A baby isn't born and it's a tragedy if that baby is stunted in its growth. That's not the intention. So how can we know that we're growing in grace? How can we know that we are in fact making real progress in our Christian life and not merely deceiving ourselves with activity? You recall Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and yes, we will finish that in the next few weeks. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, and this is probably, I think, one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. He says, many will come to me on that day. Not a few. Many will come to me on that day. What day is that, you suppose? It's the day of reckoning. It's the day of reckoning. It's the day when he returns. Many will come to me on that day and they will say to me, Lord, Lord. And they will commend themselves to me by saying, we did this and we did that, all these glorious things in your name. And Jesus said, I will respond this way. Wow, you did that? Fantastic. I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited. Is that how Jesus is going to respond? This is what's terrifying. Jesus responds. And it's not necessarily clear in the English text, but in the Greek text, the emphatic is in the first part of the sentence. Never did I know you. Never did I know you. Away from me, not you doers of good, but rather you doers of evil. There are a lot of people, a lot of professing Christians, maybe not necessarily possessing Christians, but professing Christians who are doing lots of stuff but they're not making any progress. They're not really growing. They are not really becoming more like Jesus. Is it easy to justify ourselves by doing stuff? He says, many, many, not just a few, many. Ed shared with you a few weeks ago when he talked about the the way is broad to destruction and many are on that way. The way to life is narrow. Few find it. These are these are scary words. It's often hard to recognize spiritual advance, spiritual growth. It's hard to recognize it if you're just trying to recognize it from a vantage of just a week or two or three or, or just even a few months. It's kind of like trying to determine the progress of an oak tree. Have you ever watched an oak tree grow? Stand there and go, wow, that oak tree is really growing. <laughs> no, trying to watch, trying to be cognizant of, of soul growth in a short period of time, it's trying, to, it's trying to like see the growth of an oak tree. You cannot do it. Over a span of time, if you, if you walk away for a year or two years and you come back and you revisit that oak tree, now you may see some actual growth. It's like that in our own lives. So I want to share with you ten evaluation questions to help us discern our spiritual growth. Are you ready? All right. Everybody's buckled up. Here we go. First question. Are you more thirsty for God than ever before? Now, on the surface, you can say, yeah, I am, I am. Really? Listen to how the psalmist puts it. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. The point is, are you passionate for him? Do you have a passion for God, a passion for the things? We're passionate about a lot of stuff, aren't we? A lot of stuff in this world. Some people are passionate about the Lakers. Sorry. <laughs> They're pathetic. Are you passionate about God? Do you thirst for Him more and more? Do you want to know Jesus? more and more intimately. We understand that dynamic because we find ourselves periodically in a relationship where that person really is a blessing to our life and we want to know them more and more intimately. We want to spend more and more time with them. We want to know them. We want them to know us. We want to increase their intimacy together. We understand that dynamic. So we extrapolate that to our relationship with Jesus. Do you want to know him more and more intimately? In spite of all of his spiritual maturity, in spite of all that he had seen and experienced, the Apostle Paul declares late in his life, recorded in the Philippian letter, he says, I want to know Christ. Wait a minute, what does he mean? I want to know Christ. What's he talking about? Didn't he already know Jesus more than any of us ever will in this life? Do you think? Of course he did. But the more he knew Jesus, the more he wanted to know him. The more intimate he becomes with him, the more intimate he wants to be with him. These are things that may be foreign to your experience and foreign to your religious life, but these these things ought to mark your life, and, and they mark progress. The more Paul progressed in his own spiritual life, the more thirsty for God he became. Do you long to see him face to face? Do you long really, truly, To be saturated with his spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. Do you long for that more? I pray every day, God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Not fill me with the spirit of this world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 18, he says, be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. We need him. You can be a very accomplished person, very educated. You can be very experienced in a lot of things. But without Christ, you can do nothing of any lasting significant value. God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Saturate me. I want to know you more and more and more. You see, if that's the longing of your heart, it's a fair sign that you are, in fact, growing as a Christian. If that's not something that, that impresses you, if that's not something that occurs to you, you have reason to wonder, Am I, maybe I'm not even a Christian, let alone not growing. Here's your second test question to evaluate your life by. Are you more and more loving Love, I submit to you, is the hallmark of a true Christian. Would you agree? Yeah. Love? Yeah. And especially love for each other. Yeah. If you read Paul's testimony about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the first aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is what? What's the first aspect of it? Love. 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 Listen to what John writes in First John chapter four and verse seven. he says, "Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God." Paul says the same thing in, in Romans chapter five he says, "God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit He's given to us. You cannot generate this kind of love. You cannot generate this kind of love. It must come from God, and you must be born of God to be able to receive it. Everyone, he says, who loves has been born of God and knows God. Are you more and more loving? If you are growing in love, that's a sign that you're growing in grace. You are maturing, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. Isn't that good news? I have a friend who early in his Christian life was very critical Very critical. And he was quick to express his disgust with individuals and groups who disagreed with him theologically. He thought he had all the theological categories set up. You have to be patient with people like that. But as he began to grow and mature in grace, he became, in fact, a more gracious person. And he less frequently was combative and angry, even with those who held views to the left of him, theologically, if you understand what I'm saying. So you look into your life, can you recall recent instances of a Christ-like love in your life? Can you recall occasions when you maybe sacrificed your own preferences, your own plans, maybe even your own rights? For the sake of others, you denied yourself because of love. I love you this much. If that's the case, those are milestones, those are measuring marks, if you will, in your journey in grace. However, if you are stalled in selfishness, you're stuck spiritually. And selfishness is something we all have to daily combat, don't we? This flesh does not naturally give it up. Here's your third test question. Are you more sensitive to and aware of God than ever before? Are you more sensitive to and aware of God than ever before? Now, we, the Bible teaches us that we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our own goodness, our own works, our own whatever. It's simply by God's grace that we're saved. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are by nature objects of wrath because we are so sin sinful and identified with sin. God's wrath is poured out on sin. If we're still associated with it, His wrath is poured out on us. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 verse 11 that we are dead to God but alive to sin before we become a Christian. That's our condition. And it's by God's grace that he changes all that. It's by his grace that he makes us alive to him and dead to sin. He rescues us from the domain of darkness so we're no longer objects of God's wrath but rather we're objects of his mercy and his grace and his love. Isn't that beautiful? How many are glad for God's grace to you in your life? Oh, my. And one aspect now of this new life that he gives us, one aspect, and a very, very important aspect of it, is the glorious invasion of our souls by the Holy Spirit. No longer is God distant from us. He has come to take up residence. In fact, the Bible says, the New Testament tells us, that our bodies indeed are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in me. Wow, think about that. His presence, His very presence, gives me a sense of being alive to God in my everyday life. I am more aware of God in my life, more aware of his presence, more aware of his activity, more aware of his voice than I ever have been. He's like a a spiritual artesian well. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter four when he was speaking to the woman at the well? That the Holy Spirit would be would be like rivers of living water flowing out of you. Living water. That's the, that's the kind of artesian well idea. And that the Holy Spirit would continuously bring thoughts of God and thoughts of the things of God spontaneously to our minds. You find yourself, if you are in fact growing and you're becoming more aware, and the Holy Spirit is making you more aware, all of a sudden you find yourself thinking about God and thinking about the things of God. That's a good thing, would you agree? Growing Christians find spiritual pleasure in seizing and dwelling upon those thoughts. I feel badly for a person who professes to be a Christian doesn't find pleasure in thinking on God and thinking about the things of God. In fact, squelching the Holy Spirit. I want God to speak to me. I want Him. I want the Spirit to bring to my understanding, bring to my mind the things of God, the things that God wants and God's interested in. Does that make sense to you? The Holy Spirit prompts us to see God everywhere. Is God everywhere? Yes, Yes, his presence is everywhere. And the Holy Spirit prompts you as you grow and mature as a Christian to begin to see God everywhere. The proverbial sunsets. Aren't they beautiful? Now, before you became a Christian, you probably admired sunsets. You said, oh, wow, that's beautiful. I used to live in Hawaii before I became a Christian. I lived in Kailua Kona on the Kona coast of the Big Island, Hawaii. And I lived right off of Lee Drive. Some of you are familiar with that. And I had a house right on the water's edge. Unbelievable. And I had two roommates. Three single guys. My two roommates were bartenders. (laughs) Does that give you a hint of our life? So we'd gather in the afternoon and watch the sun go down. And we would go, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, because in Hawaii, sunsets are spectacular. But of course, we ooh and ah with the aid <laughs> of something called bakalolo. I've been standing at the top of those stairs for nearly 37 years now, greeting members of our church as you come in week after week after week. And on Friday and Saturday night especially to to see those sunsets. Spectacular. But I don't need the aid of Pakalolo anymore. Because I have the Holy Ghost in me giving me a profound wonder and a profound appreciation of God's creation and the beauty of it. He is everywhere. I have a little backyard at my house, and I love to go out and sit in the backyard, just in the quiet. And I love it when, when perchance a bird would alight in one of the trees and sing. It doesn't happen much anymore because the crows have eaten them all. But every once in a while a little bird, a little finch or something comes and and, and, and just sings. And I just I just stand in awe of that. Or a hummingbird comes. And I go, Wow, look at that. My thoughts immediately go to God and His creativeness and the variety and the wonder and how He is just the the fine. Aspects of his creation. The Holy Spirit prompts me to see God even in the timing of a traffic light. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been in a hurry? And oh man, you got to get someplace really quick and you're late. It always happens when you're late. And you hit red lights. Can that be a source of frustration if you don't have the proper perspective? (laughs) He has been teaching me that he's in control of those lights. And very often I'll say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what he's protecting me from. And he's building patience into my life as I learn again new lessons of trusting him, waiting upon him. As you listen to me this morning, you are also bombarded by all sorts of radio waves, television signals, bombarded by cellular phone conversations that are going on, and you're, you don't even know about them. Right? These things are just, they're happening. They, all these waves go through these walls. They permeate us. They go through us. But we're entirely unaware of them. Why? Because, quite frankly, we're not built to receive them. You see, once you're alive to God, the Holy Spirit makes you alive to His presence everywhere. What a life. To be just wherever you are, you're aware of, and alert to God and you marvel at all that he does and all you can do is praise him and worship him I submit to you if that's happening in your life that's testimony it's evidence that you are growing you are maturing but if you're clueless it's not your experience you have reason to wonder you're probably not growing. Question number four: Are you governed more and more by God's word? Are you governed more and more by God's word? Before we were made alive to God, we we're controlled mostly by what we want. Huh? I want what I want when I want it. When do I want it? Right now. If I don't get it right now, there's going to be hell to pay. But after we become alive to Him, after we become born again, we have a new desire. Something is birthed in me. There's a new bent towards my life. There's a a new attitude. And that new bent, that new attitude has to do with being governed by His will. We learn as we grow. We learn to pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And that becomes a much more sincere prayer as you continue to grow. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Certainly we have lots of things we want God to do. We are constantly telling him what to do and when to do it, aren't we not? But as you mature, (coughs) you begin to say, Lord, but not my will, yours be done. Because I know that your will is the best. Father, don't let me miss your will. Your will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Your will is the best The true Christian, you see, has a new compulsion, a new orientation, a new desire, a new appetite to do what God wants him or her to do. And we discover that as we read our Bibles. I'd never read the Bible in my life prior to becoming a believer. And when I got my first Bible and started reading it, I could not believe what I was reading. I'm going, wow, wow, wow. I was thrilled by what I was reading. And there was a, a responsiveness in me, and I didn't know all the theology, I didn't know how it all worked, but there was a responsiveness in me to want to do when I was reading. Later I came to discover, that's the Holy Spirit in me. Birthing in me this appetite, this desire, this orientation to do and to be the kind of person that Jesus wanted me to be, that he'd save me to be. A classic passage on this, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And this, this is a testimony to what you could describe as the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, is, is the Bible enough? What do you think? Is the Bible enough, or do I need Freud? <laughs> do I need man's... Wisdom. Do I need this world's wisdom? Or simply, is God's wisdom sufficient for me? And this passage is a classic passage. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It should be on the screen. Let me read it with you, or you read it with me. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. These are God's words, like you and I would speak out, breathe words out. These are God's words, all of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. And all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, verse 17 is key. So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for most good works. Right? No, for every good work. Notice, thoroughly equipped. Nothing's left out. Whatever God has called me to do, whatever he's called me to be, he's provided resources for me through his word, all scripture. These are God's words. The scripture is sufficient. You see, words like teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, these are all growth-related words. It's all about growing. It's all about becoming more like Jesus. When you're growing as a child of God, you can, in fact, regularly point out to how the word of God has been working in your life how the Word of God has been correcting you, how it has been teaching you. I can speak confidently on matters of life to people because I know what God's Word says. And I had no doubt in my mind. It's not just speculation. I can tell people, if you'll do thus and such and such, you'll find this will be the result. Invariably, And the degree to which you do that, you'll bear the fruit. I have no doubt. I read it in the book. The Bible will teach you about life. The Bible will rebuke you and reprove you about sin in your life. We've all experienced that, haven't we? It'll show you how to correct mistakes in your life. I was going this way and the Bible showed me, no, 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 go this way. You can point to how the Bible has been training you to live in new ways that God says are his ways. Walk in this way. Walk in the way of life. You go, oh. I hear people who are moving forward in the things of God telling me all the time they're having new insights into the truth of Scripture. God's Word is speaking to them in significant, powerful ways. How God has used the Bible to give them direction for their life, for their marriage, for their career, for their ministry. How the Bible has given them reproof about their materialism or their family failures or their prayerlessness and how God has corrected them. So you have to ask yourself, can I, can I point to specific ways that the Word of God has been doing this in my life, in my recent history? And if you can point to those, chances are you're growing. Here's question number five. Are you more and more concerned With the physical and spiritual needs of others? Are you more and more concerned with the physical and spiritual needs of others? Was Jesus concerned about both those things? If you read the Gospels and you see Jesus' interactions throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yes, he's very concerned. I want to point out one particular passage that's very telling Luke chapter 9, verse 11. And Luke points us to a particular episode in Jesus' life, which was characteristic, as he encountered a crowd of people. And Luke says that Jesus does two things. Verse 11. Okay, read that verse and see if you can pick out the two things that Jesus does. Anybody? Don't be bashful. What did he do? He taught them the truth about the kingdom. And he also did what else? He healed them. He He would feed them. He would minister to them. In some temporal way, he would heal them. Can you imagine, whenever you read the Gospels and you encounter Jesus, you very often encounter this phrase, and he healed all their diseases. Wherever he went, except in Nazareth, Remember, they didn't believe in him in Nazareth. But every place else he went, he healed all their diseases. Can you imagine the length and the breadth of Israel, with exception to Nazareth? There were no sick people. There were no people with deformities. There were no people with brokenness in their bodies. He healed them all. Wow. Wow. And yet they would reject him that blow your mind? See, this is typical of Jesus. He taught them God's truth, and he would heal them or feed them. He was concerned primarily with their spiritual needs, but he also cared deeply about their physical needs as well. And the more you and I become like Jesus, what, what then does that reflect back to us? If we're the body of Christ now, the more concerned we will be with what? Thank you, Ed. Thank you. God bless you, brother. We, too, as you're becoming more like him, you will, too, as he was concerned with the spiritual and physical needs of people around him, you will become, what? Concerned with the spiritual and physical needs of people around you. In my pastoral experience, I have observed that the longer a person is a Christian in our culture, The less evangelistic that person tends to be. Should that be the way things are? No. You look in your own life. You're a Christian. The longer you've been a Christian, are you on fire for Jesus? Do you care about the spiritual and temporal needs of people around you? Are you doing anything to minister to those needs? Or, You just come to church. Ooh, it's awfully quiet. (laughs) Would you agree with me that this is obviously not a mark of Christian growth or Christ-likeness, but rather a mark of spiritual stagnancy? What should we be doing? Where should we be invested in our lives? Ministering to people's spiritual needs and their temporal needs. We are the body of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the very power, wisdom, knowledge, and grace of God to impart to other people. But if you're not growing as a Christian, will you do that? No. I submit to you, we must continually fight this tendency towards this ministry evangelism erosion in our life. You've got to constantly fight it. You have to ask yourself, how have I been demonstrating a genuine concern for the spiritual needs and the temporal needs of others? Have I proven it through praying and giving and witnessing and encouraging? Have I shown it through helping to provide for someone's food, clothing, shelter, or health needs? Am I getting beyond myself? And where I see need, does God show us needs? You can't meet them all, obviously I know that. But where God shows you need... You can begin to pray, Lord, what can I do? What would you have me do to meet this need? Most especially spiritual needs. A sure sign of Christian growth is seeing needs you've never seen before and beginning to meet them. Maybe it's the first time you step out and you try to help somebody, maybe it's somebody you work with, maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's somebody you just meet at Starbucks. If you go to Starbucks. Growth. Am I growing? Am I growing? Here's number six. Are you more and more concerned with the church and the kingdom of God? Here's a great verse. Now, I'm just going to give you the address. You tell me where it is. You tell me what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. That ought to be ringing a bell in a lot of guys' minds. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Don Wolf, what does that verse say? <laughs> Husbands! Ignore your wives. (laughs) Husbands, patronize your wives. No, husbands, what? Love your wives. But he presses it further. It's not just love your wives, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Which begs the question how much did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. A friend of mine years ago, and I've I've, I've shared this over the years, a friend of mine years ago said this to me. He said he told his wife, he said one day, he says, I love you so much that I'd die for you. To which she promptly responded, if you love me that much, why don't you try living for me? To which she resp- he responded, because it's easier to die. <laughs> what a sad but truthful commentary on the condition of many marriages today. So we see that husbands are to grow in their love for their wives. I'm always telling people, I said, look, you, you're, you're going to grow to love your wife. You're going to grow to love your wife more and more and more. I love my wife more today. Now, we've been married 37 years. I love her more today than I ever thought I could. I I, I promise you. I think about her, I get weepy. Not just because of her health conditions, but I just think about it. I giggle and laugh. Sometimes she says, what are you laughing at? I said, I can't tell you. We're to grow in our love for our wives using as our example Christ's love for the church. That verse goes on to say that Jesus loved the church so much, the people of God, that he died for us. He gave himself up for us. I submit to you, the more we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will love his church. Think about that. You and I know people, and maybe you're sitting here and you're one of these people who say, you know, the church. I love God, but man, the church. Bah humbug. There's a whole, there's a whole new sociological movement among Christians, and especially younger Christians today. They're called the Duns, D-O-N-E-S. And the theme of their Christianity is, we're done with the church. Because they don't see a value in the church. They see the church as irrelevant. It's not significant. And they've separated themselves from the church. That doesn't speak to me about loving the church, loving God's people as Christ loved the church. The church is not perfect. We know that. In fact, somebody once said that the church is kind of like Noah's Ark. The only, do you think that the, that the, the ark was a little odor-filled inside? <laughs> the, cho- the church is kind of like Noah's ark, and the only thing that allowed Noah to stand the stink inside was the storm going on outside. I submit to you, no matter how wobbly the church is, it's still the best thing going. This is why we pray for revival. This is why we say, God, renew us and revive us. Revive us in our passion for you and our passion for one another. You cannot love God and not love the church. Christians who isolate themselves from the church... They don't grow stronger by their isolation. They're self-deceived. They think, I'm going to be fine on my own. I don't need those people. They're fools. I know the truth. You're crazy to do that, to disassociate yourself from the church. They're like a part of the body that gets cut off from the body. If My arm gets cut off. Is it going to survive? No. This is one of the metaphors of the church, a body. All the parts must be functioning together. We've all got to be on board. We've all got to be all in. Not opting out. If we separate ourselves from participating in the life of the church, we will not grow. If we separate ourselves from participating and working for his kingdom, we will not grow. I'm always encouraging people get involved, get involved, get involved, get involved. Well, I don't know where to get involved. Where should you start? If you don't know where to get involved, where should you start getting involved? Go back to my announcements. (laughs) Oh, how long have I been with you? (laughs) Here's number seven. Are the disciplines of the Christian life more and more important to you? Are the disciplines of the Christian life more and more important to you? Is growth in grace ultimately a gift from God? Yes. But does that necessarily mean that there's nothing for us to do? Do we just say, I believe in Jesus and sit down and then that's it? No. Regarding our role in spiritual growth, God has said to us, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, to train yourself, discipline yourself to be godly or for the purpose of godliness. Train yourself, discipline yourself to be like Jesus. And as we engage spiritual disciplines, the Holy Spirit uses those as means, as avenues of His grace to us to make us, in fact, more and more like Him. This is how we train ourselves. Probably the most common reason for the lack of spiritual growth amongst many Christians is their inconsistency in engaging spiritual disciplines. It's that simple. We don't grow in grace if we fail to use God-given means for growing in grace. These are spiritual disciplines. Those who grow the most, those who grow the fastest, are those who place themselves in those channels of grace. What are some examples of spiritual disciplines that you may be aware of? Give me some examples of spiritual disciplines. What's one? Prayer. Prayer. What's another one? Read my Bible. Read my Bible. What's another one? Fasting. What's another one? Fellowship. By, mean, by fellowship, I don't mean just going to Disneyland with other Christians. Well, let's fellowship. Let's go to Disneyland. What would be another spiritual discipline? Giving. What's another one? Serving. What's another one? Was it Evangelion. evangelism? What's another one? Worship. Worship. Somebody already said worship. There's lots. There's lots of them. I, I want to commend a book to you. If you if you've never read this, uh, it's written by a man who uh, is a brilliant brilliant theologian and teacher. Uh, his name is Dallas Willard, and he wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. And it's about spiritual disciplines. And it's about the effect they have in your life and about how best to engage them. I want to commend that to you. Number eight, are you more and more aware of your sin? That's, a, that's an exciting thing, right? And one of the last things that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was martyred when he was about as mature as a Christian could get, he described himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Who knows how he described himself? As the worst sinner. The worst of all sinners. Now, how could he say that? How could he say that? He was probably more like Jesus than anyone you and I have ever met. He could say it because the closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you become of your own sin and how really unlike Him, you still really are. It's kind of like if I use this analogy, picture in your mind a pasture. You're going through some farmland, there's this big pasture, and you see a, 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 a I don't know how to describe this. Is it a herd of sheep? flock of sheep? What is it? Flock of sheep. You sure? Flock of birds. Flock of sheep. Is that right, Jerry? Flock? Well, you get, you get the idea. You see a bunch of sheep. Yeah, you see a lot of them. That's right. And you see them against the backdrop of, of, of the ground and the grass and, and the trees. And against that darker backdrop, they look white. But then the next time you drive by, it has just snowed. And now you see them against the backdrop of snow, and they're not nearly so white as they were previously. Do you get the picture? And that's the same way. When we look at, we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to Jesus, oh man, we become more aware of our own sin. At least we should, I submit to you. One of the first spiritual struggles of a new Christian occurs when that Christian becomes aware of sin that was never bothersome before. <laughs> before I became a Christian, I was not bothered by sin. I loved sin. I loved it. I pottied. And it's not uncommon for a new believer to feel more guilty at times than ever before becoming a Christian. "Ow, ooh, ouch. I remember hearing, I remember saying this, that's wrong? I shouldn't do that? I had some great people in my life mentoring me and, and discipling me early on. Why is that so? Why does that happen? I think among other things, it's because you're now alive to the Holy Spirit in your life for the first time. And now because of the Holy Spirit, you're more aware of sin. The more you grow as a Christian, the less you will sin. Let me say that again. The more you grow as a Christian, the less you will sin. But it often will seem as though you sin more because now you're more sensitive to sin. Does that make sense? You become aware, not just of simply the external acts and behavior, you become more aware of what's going on inside. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mountain and Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites." And who think that they're so righteous because they don't commit murder or they don't commit adultery. But he says, I tell you, it's what's going on inside. Who of us hasn't been at some point by the Holy Spirit convicted of our own pride? Ooh, man, that's a hard one, isn't it? I thought I was doing so well. Boom. (laughs) You reflect on your life and you say, even as a Christian, you say, well, that wasn't my best moment. That wasn't my best moment. You can go down a whole list of things. You become more aware of your sinfulness. Number nine, are you more and more willing to forgive others? Are you more and more? Notice, it's, it's more and more and more. It's not absolutely, but it's, are you more and more? Are you moving in that direction? Are you more and more willing to forgive others? Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you don't forgive others, you can't count on God's forgiveness. He rehearses that in Ephesians chapter 4 when he exhorts us to forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven you. How many times should we forgive? That's always the question, right? How many times should I forgive? Ed, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Seven times. Seven times. That's magnanimous. Seven times. How about 70 times seven? Is that the limit, 70 times 7? Seven? No, no. There should be, no, well, let me just pose it this way to you. How many are glad that God doesn't have a limit on how, he, how many times he forgives you? You go to him, sheepish again, with your tail between your legs, saying, Father, I did it again. No limit on forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the hardest and I submit to you one of the most unnatural things to do. Forgiveness. All of us understand that to some degree. But the more we become like Jesus who forgave even those who nailed him to the cross, the more we'll be willing to forgive. What did he say? He's hanging there. He's gagging his juices. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the model. We say, Father, forgive them. I forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, yes, they do. No, they don't. (coughs) They don't really know what they're doing. Just like when you and I offend somebody, we don't really know what we're doing. Forgive them. If you're growing as a Christian, you'll be doing it more and more and more. You see the need for it. About 20 plus years ago, I was preaching on forgiveness. And unbeknownst to me, there was a young woman in our church. She'd come for the very first time, which which I would learn subsequently. And she listened. And afterwards, about a week later, I got a letter from her. And the letter detailed uh, pretty exhaustively my message on forgiveness and her life and how she could not and would not forgive her father. She'd grown up in the church. Her father was an elder in their church and he had sexually abused her for years. And she poured out in this letter the grief, the confusion, the anger, the resentment, and the brokenness. There was no phone number, no return address. There was a name. I had no way to get in touch with her. So I began to pray, Lord, if it if it'd be your will that maybe we could make a connection, we could have a dialogue. So about a week or two later, I'm out and about, and I have to go to the bank. That was in the days you actually went to the bank. <laughs> I still do that, by the way. I go to the bank, and I'm standing in line waiting for my my uh, uh, time with the teller, and I get up to the teller, and I look at her name tag. It was the same name. And I looked at her, and I said... Did you write me a letter this past month and she just turned as white as a sheet. I gave her my card and I said can we talk if you want call me. Now I had an ongoing relationship with her for the last 20 to 25 years. She's moved out of the area. Her issue was unbelievable you I don't know if you can appreciate the depth, the depth of her grief, her confusion, sense of betrayal, the the messages, the conflicting messages she was getting. She was a mess. She had been through therapy, she was on drugs, everything to manage just so she could manage her life. She was married. Her marriage was falling apart. Her life was an absolute tragedy. And so we would sit down and we would talk and I would would listen to her and, and I'd encourage her to pour out her sorrow and her grief and her anger and frustration. And then she would be exhausted. And I'd say, you you know the only solution to this. And she didn't want to hear it. She had a right to her anger. She had a right to her resentment. She hated her father. But worse yet, she hated God. Her refrain to me was, Where was God in all this? And because she couldn't forgive or wouldn't forgive, her bitterness crushed every little shoot, every little bud of spiritual growth that was trying to break through in her life. She eventually was divorced from her husband, moved out of the area. She was alone, embittered, and suicidal. But For some reason, God had seen fit to keep her alive. And just a couple of years ago, she wrote me a letter She says, I understand. I'm working hard to forgive my father and God. Are you bitter at someone that you were bitter toward six months ago? It's easy to carry that stuff, isn't it? And to justify it. You see, regardless of all your Christian activity, In all your Christian busyness, you've only deceived yourself about having made any real spiritual progress or growth if you have not forgiven people in your past. Why does it have to be me doing it? We sin against God. He forgave us. He says, you do likewise. Likewise. You'll never grow. You'll never grow unless you're willing to forgive. Now, your situation may not be as extreme as the example I've used, but hopefully you understand the truth and the principle. If you do forgive, you're growing. You're growing. Praise God. Lastly, number 10, are you thinking more and more of heaven and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul wrote to the Philippians. They they desperately needed him. And he wrote to them in chapter 1 of Philippians, and the more he became like Christ, the more he wanted to depart and be with Christ. But he knew which was better for him, but he knew it was better that he remain with them. Paul writes to us in Colossians chapter 3. Keep your minds and your hearts set on things above. So you be some earthly good. I've heard people say this. You know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Ha! <laughs> We're not heavenly minded enough so that we can be some earthly good. Don't keep your minds and hearts set on things below, have them set on things below, above. Heaven, glory, God. Do you think like that very often? I remember early on, I was taught by people who were discipling me to read. I was never a reader in my life. And, uh, but they taught me to read, and they, they, they put some books into my hands. And uh, a lot of those books were biographies, of saints Uh, men and women of God just inspired me I love to read those things and I love to read about those people and their lives and how they in fact reflected heaven hungered for heaven and hungered to see the Lord I remember reading Pilgrim's Progress if you've never read that it's a classic you can get it in modern English and I remember I wanted to read it to my son when he was a little boy. So I found a version of Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're a dad, this, and if you've got young, young kids, uh, this is a great book. It's called The Dangerous Journey. And it was a pictorial of the Pilgrim's Progress. And he loved it. And we'd read it. And, and the pictures in it were just powerful. But in so doing, there was birthed in him an appetite for the celestial city and an understanding of what stands in our way on that journey to the celestial city. It's a marvelous, marvelous read. You see, one of the signs of becoming more like Jesus is increasingly wanting to be with him. I want to be with him. I want to be with him. Now, Remember, growth in grace happens intentionally. It doesn't happen automatically. You have to be intentional about growing. It's kind of like the explorer that we talked about earlier on, on that ice flow. You can drift away from spiritual progress. You will not drift towards spiritual progress. Without purpose... Without regular evaluation, you will eventually find that despite your activity, you've drifted away from Christ likeness. Growth may be slow. Don't be discouraged. Make sure you're just growing. Direction is more important than speed. The question isn't how quickly are you growing, but rather, are you growing? Are you making progress? Are you becoming more like Jesus? And beloved, regardless of the measure of your maturity, remember this, what is past is past. We are pressing on to lay hold of spiritual maturity. Amen? Amen. Keep that evaluation. Check yourself out regularly. Lord, thank you. Thank you again. For your provision. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to become more like you. Indeed, that be your being your purpose. Help us, O oh God. Some of us are sluggish, some of us are unwilling, some of us are, are just quite frankly not even believers yet.